repeat revenue is so critical when acquisition becomes expensive for two reasons. One is it just provides more profitability. And the second is it, it helps you justify higher acquisition costs on the front end if you can count on those customers to drive meaningful LTV. Hey everyone, this is Nazara Keel from Max Pro. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Paul. And we're Love and Pebbles. Hi, this is Lopa Vandermersch from Rasa. Oh, you're listening. And you're listening. And you are listening to the Ecom Show. Welcome to the Ecom Show, presented by Blue Tusker. The number one place to hear the inside scoop from other e-commerce experts, where they share their secrets on how they scaled their business and are now living the dream. Now, here is your host, Andrew Math. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ecom Show. I'm your host, Andrew Math, and today I'm joined by the amazing Drew Cook, uh, who is the CFO and head of operations over at Pact. Drew, how you doing? You ready for a good show? Good, Andrew. Excited to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, super excited to have you on the show. Love diving into everything that you've got going on. Obviously, touching sustainability, we'll get into that stuff too. But I like to do the usual and give you an opportunity to give everyone a little bit more information about your background, where you've been, where you're at now, and a little bit more about PACT. Perfect. So um, I've been at PACT for about nine years. Uh, before that, I have what I would consider a pretty typical kind of finance training background. So I did investment banking. Um, in New York for a few years and then uh, worked for the Chicago Cubs, which was uh, an interesting spin on finance, but did that for a couple of years. Um, and then I went to business school in Chicago. And between my two years, I interned with um, a small venture fund called Revory Brands, who um, at the time was the majority owner of Pact. Um, so got exposed to the, the Pact business at that point. Um, loved it, was kind of inspired by the mission and, and the team and um, joined full-time after I graduated from business school. Um, and so I've been, been here for nine years, as I mentioned. Um, my kind of role covers all the, what I would consider supporting functions. So we're 90% direct consumer, we've got a small wholesale business. Um, and I view kind of my job, my team's job is making life easier for our marketers and our product team to put great products on our website and, and hopefully sell them. So um and yeah, Pact has been around for a little bit longer than I've been here, for, so 12 or 13 years. Um, we are, uh, as I mentioned, 90% direct consumer, about 85% women's products is what we sell. Um, and our key point of differentiation in the market is sustainability. So everything that we make is certified organic, um, and almost everything we make comes out of a fair trade certified factory. So um, you know, apparel is a pretty crowded marketplace, but we've got um, a, uh, a few points of difference that help us stand out a little bit. Yeah. So on the sustainability side, you know, obviously everything's kind of labeled as, you know, organic and, it, you know, obviously it says all the different sustainability things that everyone likes to claim. And that's also a crowded market now as well, because everyone's kind of going in that direction. So what are what's your team doing to kind of stand out from all the other sustainable brands that are out there now? Yeah, I think the big piece is that, you know, it, for us, it's not a capsule. It's not one season that we're testing it out, it's comprehensive. And so when you come in to our website, you can be confident that everything that you're going to buy there or see there is made with the same values. Um, and so, you know, a lot of brands, big brands, small brands will kind of test out sustainability to see how their consumers feel about it by doing a capsule. So they'll try, you know, a, a collection of t-shirts that are organic. 
Um, but we believe to make kind of long lasting change in the industry, you have to, to commit to it a little bit more wholeheartedly. And so we've made um, a very strong bet that consumers care about where products come from and how they're made. Um, and so it runs through every single product we make. One thing I, I know I wanted to touch on because it's super interesting. You're the CFO and the head of operations, which is usually two different roles, not usually uh, two different things. So obviously, I you've got a, a massive background on the financial side. I know I believe you were at Merrill Lynch for a while. I just, you mentioned you were with the Cubs. The operational side. So are you also overseeing like fulfillment, inventory, all that fun stuff? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think specifically on the inventory piece, as an earlier stage business, working capital and kind of inventory management is so critical to cash management overall. And cash management is so critical to kind of earlier stage businesses that I think there's a very direct line there with how that works. Um, but the more kind of tactical operational piece, fulfillment, um, you know, I help, I work hand in hand with our head of product on procurement and, and kind of working directly with our factories, um, inbound freight, outbound freight. That piece has been something that I've learned, but what my kind of view on it, having done it for four or five years now is that an analytical mindset is well suited to handle those responsibilities. And, um, I think the training I got in finance and kind of, in my experience, um, being the CFO made me a little bit better suited to kind of pick pick up the operations piece, even though I didn't have more specific you know, ops background or training. That makes a lot of sense. And that is a very good point. But now at this point, and you, you, your company, I know is far cleared eight figures. So you're much bigger now. Um, so handling all of that's got to be super fun. Are you on like, how many different channels are you on? Are you solely focused on the D2C site? Or are you also available on other marketplaces or other websites? So we, um, we, our online presence is almost exclusively limited to our website, which is wherepacks.com. Um, we have a very small Amazon presence, um, and Zappos puts some of the products we sell to them on Amazon. Um, but then we also have, um, the remaining, most of the, um, the 10% that's not via our own website comes from Whole Foods Market. So we have, uh, distribution in about 450 different Whole Foods across the country, um, they have a, what I would describe as a relatively curated assortment of our products. Um, a lot of people don't even know that, um, that Whole Foods sells apparel, but we've got a, a pretty sizable business there um, that, you know, we actually think is bigger than anything we could ever build with any individual department store. So it's a great place for us to meet our consumer. They're very good partners for us. And, um, you know, the, the consumer walking through the Whole Foods door is, is one that, um, immediately has at least some base alignment with our values. Yeah. That seems like the two brands would be aligned pretty well. Yeah. The Amazon side is very interesting. I'm always excited to hear when someone is limiting how much they're doing on Amazon. What is the the thought process behind why you have a limited uh, selection on inventory on uh, Amazon? And then why did you select that product line as well? Yeah. So, um, it's impossible to, I think it's impossible to ignore Amazon overall. They are within kind of any kind of e-commerce. They are not only a huge checkout location, but it's also a research platform and a search engine. Um, and so I think to not be on there risks the chance to kind of miss exposing your brand to, to certain consumers. And 
Um, there are a million risks with Amazon. If you get over leveraged to them, um, they can always you know go do the same thing via their private label. Um, you don't own the customer interaction or the customer relationship. Um, and so, you know, we very clearly acknowledge kind of the risks and the biggest one for us is probably being directly competitive with our own website. Um, and so we try to limit the assortment. The way we do it is um, if you're on Amazon, you're also not typically shopping for fashion items. I don't think it is the best kind of fashion buying experience. And so we put our kind of core basics on there, replenishable items that you can think of buying um, on Amazon. So our biggest product category right now is our women's shelf rock camisole. It is a basic layering piece. It accounts for like 75% of our sales on Amazon. So we just have great scale there and, um, you know, a long history of built, built up reviews. And so we try to make sure that what we're putting on there is very tight, that it's not going to detract from, you know, what we think of as the higher value consumer relationships that will come from a direct relationship. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Are you, and for Zappos, so obviously you're selling Zappos, they're doing someone there. They just, that's, you don't have any control over that, correct? It's just Zappos just has it available. Yeah, it's, Zappos is also a very small assortment that we sell to them. And um, they, you know, Zappos and Amazon are part of the same company, which is Amazon as a parent company. And um, so Zappos chooses to put um, a fair amount of their products onto the Amazon platform. Um, and so some of our products that you'll see on Amazon, you'll, you'll know that they're actually sold by Zappos. That's interesting. So are they overlapping with you at all? Or is there something in there? Where, <coughs> what, there's some overlap. You're not available. Yeah, no, there's some overlap with products we sell there and on our website. We do try to keep it to most of our basics as well. Um, and so you know, we're actually thinking a lot about that channel right now and what the best way to kind of to service both Zappos and Amazon is. Um, but we, I think our continued belief is that you want core basics in typically in different pack sizes than we're selling on our own website as well. So that you're differentiating that way. Um, but where people are looking for, um, you know, organic, if they're searching for organic underwear, they're searching for organic leggings, they can find our assortment there because we think we do it better than anybody else. And, um, you know, we haven't spent a ton of money on brand awareness. And so being in that platform can ultimately help bring people into the brand. Yeah. You mentioned you have been with the company for nine years there. You said they're about 12, 13 years old. So you were yeah. pretty much right at the beginning there. So obviously you've seen the company grow substantially since then. And you also yeah. got to go through the fun that was the whole COVID period. How did you deal with that uh, specifically with supply chain issues? And then what I would imagine was probably a, a pretty significant increase in sales traffic coming to the site. And is that still something that you're battling with or have you kind of cleared through that? Yeah, so COVID, as I think you've kind of nailed it, it was a double-edged sword where um, at the beginning of COVID when we had already, you know, bought products and we weren't waiting for them to come in, it felt amazing from a business standpoint because you've got all this demand. People are at home. Um, they are buying online. And for us, they're buying comfort. And comfort is kind of is really what we focus on. And so our brand was very well suited to take advantage of that. The other kind of interesting aspect is that grocery stores were always deemed essential. And so our retail via Whole Foods never really shut down. So we were, you know, people weren't going to Nordstrom's, but people were still going to Whole Foods or um, and other grocery stores. So that kind of helped insulate some of our wholesale business as well. 
Um, and so super beneficial at the start. And then you start to see the, the impact on the supply chain, specifically what was happening overseas. So our factories shut down from anywhere between 30 to 60 days. Um, at the same time, we're facing, you know, massive increase in demand. And so, um, you know, the, the follow-on effect of that is that at some point you start running well on inventory. Um, and, and then compounding that was the port issues in LA. Um, and so there were vessels that would sit outside the port of LA for 20 or 25 days. Um, so we would be, we would think we're kind of on the verge of having new products and then they'd be stuck kind of, you know, just miles offshore. Um, and so that was very challenging. Um, you know, our warehouse managed things pretty well through COVID. Um, so we didn't have huge issues there. Um, but now it feels like things are normalizing a little bit, but you know, as the supply chain normalizes, then you start to see the softer consumer with some of the macro, uh, things that are happening right now in the economy. So, um, it's always, it, it, you know, our business has been pretty good, but it's hard. It feels like you never see, you know, supply working perfectly smoothly and demand taking off at the same time. It seems to be one or the other. Yeah. Where, uh, where do you think this is going to end up going now? So obviously like, you know, we've kind of gotten out of the supply chain issues, but now we're having this issue where a lot of sellers and correct me if I'm wrong, if it's on your end as well, but a lot of sellers are seeing that sales are some saying they're slumping. Others are saying like, yeah, well that's because the past two or three years was kind of like gangbusters. So it's, it's a little bit, is it, is it actually slumping or is it correcting? But then obviously now we're, you know, in this discussion of are we in a recession or are we not? Are things going to get worse? Are they going to get better? How are you kind of mitigating that and being able to deal with what may or may not happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, first of all, I'm not an economist. I'm not that smart on this stuff. So I I read and I try (laughs) to understand um, how it's going to impact our business. Um, And, you know, my gut is that if you tell the public and customers and consumers over and over and over that, that there's a recession happening, that they're going to start to believe it and act accordingly, even when employment's holding up. Okay. You know, people aren't losing their jobs at, um, at a, a massive rate as they have in past recessions. Um, and so, you know, for us, like, I also think it's hard for us to pinpoint what's going on. Is it just a normalization from COVID peaks of demand that you were talking about we're also just at a much higher scale. And so I think maintaining the same levels of growth we've seen the past few years isn't necessarily sustainable, but we're still going to grow 25, 30% this year. Um, and so, you know, that's, um, I think we're beneficial to be, we're, we're fortunate to be in that situation that, um, you know, our business still has some, some tailwinds to it. Um, but, you know, my hope is that is, you know, we can kind of navigate through as inflation eases, consumers probably get a little bit more, comfortable buying and that we have somewhat of a soft landing here and that we don't see um, some of the same recession impacts that we've seen historically. And I think one of the other hard things to, to put together is that the last recession that everybody's thinking about was the second biggest in the, co- in the country's history. And so I think it's possible for us to be in a recession that's not quite as negative and that, you know, people are waiting for the bottom to fall out, but we might have a little bit more of a muted recession where we can bounce back a little bit quicker. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Are you doing anything now to potentially, you know, just kind of reduce any, I guess, any risk that you may have? I know some people are really ramping up marketing because they want to just kind of fight through it. Others are going in the opposite direction where they're more focused on, you know, 
efficiencies of fulfillment and inventory and just making sure they have what they need to kind of ride out whatever's going to happen? Like, what's your approach to that? Yeah, I think part of it is trying to be cautious about the macro environment right now, but the other is understanding what's happened to, you know, growth stage businesses over the past two years. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, if you were growing 40 or 50%, it didn't matter what your bottom line looked like. And that has very much changed, I think, in the market and, and whether it's public investors or private equity investors. Um, and so I think the incentives for a brand to, to pursue growth at all costs have gone away. Um, and so for us, I think that's probably the bigger driver for us versus macro conditions is that, you know, we build sustainable products. We also need to have a financially sustainable business model. And, you know, we are, we're profitable. We're not reliant on external capital right now to fund our operations. And so for us, I think that's been the biggest piece is that we're slowing growth a little bit proactively because that means we can grow more profitably and not necessarily um, risk that, you know, we're going to grow so fast that we need to fund operating losses to do so. Um, and so I would say it's more of the um, kind of market conditions in some way that have dictated um, us slowing down growth a little bit and being a little bit more cautious about how we're spending pace of new customer acquisition and things like that. Yeah. So as you kind of look into that, you know, adjustment, you're obviously focusing on bottom line. What does the investment then go into? Are you looking to expand into new channels? Is the thought to expand inventory? And from a marketing side, which is obviously a little bit more in my forte, like there's really only so much you can do from a digital perspective without just spending an arm and a leg for customer acquisition costs. There's only so many ad channels. Like what does that approach look like to continue to scale it? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's really hard. So there, as you kind of continue investing in new customer acquisition, there are diminishing returns at some point. And so, um, and we're very big on measurement and data. And so if we're not seeing, if we can't see what a dollar is getting us in spend, it's hard for us to place that dollar. And so we've retrenched a little bit into very core marketing channels where we feel like we have strong attribution, the ability to kind of pull levers as we need to manage overall performance. Um, and so as we think about investing in growth, um, you know, we're looking at um, a number of things. One is continuing to try to um, ensure that we're providing existing customers with options to come back. And so repeat revenue is so critical when acquisition becomes expensive uh, for two reasons. One is it just provides more profitability. And the second is it, it helps you justify higher acquisition costs on the front end if you can count on those customers to drive meaningful LTV. Um, and so focus a lot on providing great service, great products to our existing customers. We're also looking at new channels. And so, you know, D2C was the hot thing for a while, but now everybody's looking more at omni-channel. And so where are the places that we can go efficiently meet consumers where, again, we we always believe that there is more value to having a direct relationship with a consumer, but can you go meet consumers in channels where they're already shopping, where there's high intent, and can you convert them into direct consumers long-term? Um, yeah. And so with you know, rising, rising to digital costs and CACs, it starts to, you know, help make wholesale look more appealing in terms of going and finding consumers. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the LTV side and that's, it's one of those things that I'm always kind of shocked when I speak to people about, you know, the business they're running, mostly obviously e-commerce sellers of like, it never seems to be as much of a focus as I believe that it should be. 
obviously it sounds like you guys are doing that. And I don't want to get into specifics on financials or anything, but how are you measuring basically what your customer acquisition cost is versus what your LTV is? Because LTV can be a bit of a loaded question if you're factoring in like, you know, 12, 13 years of business, you really only want to limit that LTV to like a couple of years or so. So how are yeah. you measuring that? Yeah. So we look at LTV to CAC and we look at it over shorter periods of time. So two year, two to three years kind of max. Um, you know, our, I didn't mention this at the front, but our business actually started mostly as a wholesale business. And so we have kind of pivoted since then. And so I would say our e-commerce business is really only five or six years old. Um, and so we look at more recent cohorts because, again, I think you don't want to count on having customers be with you for four or five, six years. It's hard to know what, what things are going to look like down the road. Um, and also, I think you know the most recent cohorts are probably the best at predicting what's going to happen in the near term future. So uh, we look very closely at LTV to CAC to make sure we're driving meaningful profitability. We focus on first versus profitability, too, though, because then it makes everything else gravy. And so... Um, trying to get to a first purchase profitable um, uh, dynamic where you feel like you can kind of invest up until a point and you know, we know exactly what our ROAS needs to be for a first purchase to be profitable. And so let's grow up until we get to that point, but not go beyond that. Um, yeah. And then the retention piece becomes, you know, just, just icing on the cake. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned that, you know, you've kind of focused on those main marketing channels that are, obviously the ones that you have stronger attribution on that you have a little bit more control over to pull those levers, which, what are those channels that you're mainly focused on now? So for new customers, we still spend a lot of our money within the meta platform. So Facebook and Instagram, and then Google is our third. Um, we also do a lot of affiliate because affiliate is just pay for performance, which is great. If you're going to you know, give a, um, uh, some type of content producer, you know, 10, 12% to help you sell your products. That's much cheaper than paying Facebook 50 or 60 bucks to acquire a customer for you. Um, so those are the channels that we, that we focus on. And then again, I, kind of circling back to the retention piece in LTV, you know, we'll do 65% of our revenue this year from existing customers. And so, you know, that I think is, we don't talk about that from a channel standpoint as much, but SMS and email are critical for us. That makes sense. Drew, really appreciate having you on the show. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, obviously, really appreciate it. I'd love to give you an opportunity here to let everyone know a little bit more about where they can find more about you and more about Pact. Awesome. Yeah, so um, find more about Pact at wearpact.com. Um, you know, we, I, I, I will be biased in saying we make amazing clothes, and you can also feel good about what you're purchasing from an environmental and a social standpoint. So um, check us out there. And then uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Drew Cook. Um, and yeah, Andrew, I really appreciate the time and the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show, Drew. Everyone else who tuned in, obviously, thank you as well. Please do the usual rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff on whichever channel you want, or head over to ecomshow.com to check out all of our other episodes. But as usual, we appreciate y'all joining us and we'll see you all next time. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to the Ecom Show. Head over to ecomshow.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or on the Blue Tusker YouTube channel. The Ecom Show is brought to you by Blue Tusker, a full-service digital marketing company specifically for e-commerce sellers looking to accelerate their growth. Go to bluetusker.com now for more information. Make sure to tune in next week for another amazing episode of The Ecom Show.